So welcome everyone to Greenbelt this morning. If you are new with us, uh, my name is Kevin and I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, we're in a series now called What Would Jesus Undo? And we're looking at the teachings of Jesus in the Bible. We're looking at the teachings of Jesus's followers, the apostles who wrote kind of the second half part of the New Testament. And we're looking at what Jesus would undo in our lives as followers of Jesus. You see, so many people, I think, believe Christianity is a list that we do. You know, years ago, there was the Christian movement of what would Jesus do? And we would all wear these bracelets to remind ourselves on what would Jesus do in this circumstance or in this circumstance. Now, I'm a big fan of that, especially because in some circumstances, kicking over tables and whacking people with a cord is a perfectly good solution. If you know what Jesus did to hard-nosed religious people, sometimes kicking over tables is a good response. Not during a board meeting, though, okay? But so we get so obsessed on what should we do, what should we do, we make our faith in Jesus about this list of performance. But Jesus actually came to set us free from a whole bunch of things that are in our hearts, in our minds, that play out in our lives. So for 10 weeks, we're going through this topic of what would Jesus undo? And the important thing to remember as we're going through this as a church family is this teaching is for people who call themselves followers of Jesus. If you're here today and you would say, I'm not too sure where I stand with God. I'm not too sure if I believe in this stuff. I'm just kind of checking this thing out. That's awesome that you're here. And awesome that you're exploring this. But this is stuff that Jesus is teaching to his followers. I think sadly, as the church, we take the teachings of the Bible and and get people who don't even believe in God to try to live biblically. And we get mad at them because they're not living the way we tell them they should live. But they don't believe in God. They don't believe in Jesus. They have never surrendered their lives to him. Why would we expect them to live any other way? So this is for us, who call ourselves followers of Christ, to explore in our own hearts, what would Jesus undo? And if you're not a follower of Christ, my hope is that you will hear this, and you will hear about God's love, and how much he wants you to be a part of his family. And it's not about performance, that just be religious enough and God will love you, that God loves you, and he died for you, and he wants you to be a part of his family. So in this series, we started it off talking about the topic of unforgiveness, that Jesus wants to undo unforgiveness in our lives. As you and I, we have been forgiven of much. When you look at who God is, this holy, perfect, righteous, all-loving God, every little sin that we have, every little bad thought is like dirty rags to this God. We have been forgiven of so much. And because we have been forgiven by this loving God, We are called to live lives of forgiving others. But too often we get hard-hearted. I don't deserve this. That person hasn't earned my forgiveness. Well, guess what? You didn't earn God's forgiveness either. So we live lives of forgiveness. Jesus wants to undo unforgiveness in our lives. Then we also talked about the the topic of hollow worship. And we saw how the, the, the people... Back in Jesus' day, the religious leaders were more concerned with the tradition of the elders than what the word of God actually taught. 
And Jesus calls them out on that and says, your worship of God is actually done in vain. And the church, we can get a little obsessed on how we do church, how we do Sunday morning. How loud was the music? That was too loud. That was too quiet. That was too bright. That was too bright. You didn't sing my favorite song. All the stuff that we like to argue about, if we're not careful, the tradition trumps the heart of God. So we got to make sure that we are not bringing hollow worship to God. And then last week we talked about how Jesus wants to undo spiritual pride. And this is this idea, especially when a church is healthy, when a church is growing, we can start to believe our own hype. We can start to believe, wow, we're awesome and we got it all together. Too bad all the other churches aren't as good as we are. (laughs) Now, in a Canadian context and in our context, we don't tend to think that way. I think we tend to fall into the opposite side of spiritual pride. And we think, oh, well, I could never do this because of this. Or I could never be a leader in the church because of my life or my past. Or I could never, you know, volunteer. Or, or I could never be generous. Or, and we make up all these excuses. And so what you're saying is your life, your, circumstance, your circumstances, your opinion is more powerful than God. That's just pride in a different way. <laughs> it's not that you think you're so amazing is you don't think God is amazing enough to do something even through you. And so today I want to talk about um, one of my favorite topics to talk about. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had a gentleman who was starting to come to the church, had been here a few times, uh, wanted to meet with me to talk and learn a little bit more about the church. So we had some coffee together. We were in my office. And he asked me, and he, and he said to me, I really just want to attend a church that's really good at teaching the Bible. And I was like, okay. What do you mean by that? Because different people have different definitions of what that means. Because I just want a church, I want to go to a church, and I want you, you know, to go through the Greek. I want you to unpack the Hebrew. I want you to show me the historical context, put this text in relation to this text, and how this all fits together. I went, okay, for what purpose? I like to poke. It's just kind of my nature. So what's the purpose of learning that? Well, I just feel I need to know the Bible better. Okay, I'm a big fan of knowing the Bible better. I'm a big believer in knowing the Bible better. But to what end? Cricket, cricket, cricket. No answer. No answer. And he said, well, it's really important to me that I don't go to a church that talks about money. And it's really important to me that I go to a church that isn't always talking about sex. And it's really important to me that I go to a church that isn't talking about sin all the time. And then I really started to poke. (laughs) And I said, so basically, you want to go to a church that doesn't teach the things that Jesus taught. (laughs) Because Jesus had a lot to say about sexuality. Jesus had a lot to say about money. Jesus had a lot to say about sin. And if we're not comfortable with those topics, that's a heart thing that we need to work on. And I said this to this gentleman. Never saw him again. (laughs) And that's okay. He's on his journey. But we're going to talk about money today. One of my three favorite topics. My favorite things. If you want to have a fun conversation with me, bring coffee to the church. We'll talk about sex. We'll talk about money. We'll talk about politics. Okay, maybe Star Wars. <laughs> we'll throw Star Wars in there for good measure. Okay, but those are my three favorite things to talk about. And you know what's fascinating about the world that we live in today? Ever since the 1940s, we have been telling people, don't talk about sex, money, or politics. So is it any surprise that our culture today is in such a mess when it comes to sex, 
money and politics. Because we don't know how to talk about it. We just fight each other on social media. person is a devil and this person's a Nazi and this person is this. We can't even talk about this stuff anymore. But today I want to talk about what Jesus teaches on the subject of greed. Because I firmly believe that Jesus has come to undo greed. Now when you hear that word greed, what kind of picture comes to mind? How many of you, when I say greed or greedy people, the image you have is Ebenezer Scrooge? Or if you're more of a Disney fan like I am, it's Scrooge McDuck. You know, the, 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 the animated duck with the top hat and the vest, and he's swimming. He's doing the backstroke with all the gold coins in this big giant vault, and he's diving into it, and he's throwing the coins up in the air. Right? That's what we think of when we think of greed. Right? It's the corporate CEO who fires 10,000 people in his company so that he can keep his new uh, boathouse in Malibu. <laughs> Or the person who's backstabbing everyone to manipulate the system to get as much money or possessions as possible. Like even by way of definition, like the dictionary defines greed as this. It's an excessive or a rapacious desire, especially for wealth or possessions. It's this obsessive desire for more wealth, more possessions. Now if I was really honest... I've never met someone like that. I've never met that definition of greedy. This person who's just manipulative and desires wealth, desires possessions at all costs. I've never met that person. So by this definition, I have never met a greedy person. But Jesus, in his teaching, seems to point out something very fascinating. He points out that Every human heart is greedy. Every human heart on this planet is consumed by greed. And he has come to undo the greed that is in my heart and is in your heart. So what is this kind of greed that Jesus talks about? It's a type of greed that sneaks in to our lives. It's a type of greed that we don't even know we have. <laughs> because I'm not Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> I'm not Ebenezer Scrooge. I'm not this horrible CEO. I'm not this corrupt politician. But all of us suffer from greed. And Jesus has come to set us free from that. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to look at Luke chapter 12 today. Luke chapter 12. If you uh, are here with us today and you do not own a Bible, there is one in the chair in front of you. Uh, you can actually keep that. That is our gift to you. I'm a believer that every family should own a Bible. And if you are watching this online, you can download the Bible at Bible.com or through our church app. And if you're watching online and you don't own a, a physical Bible and you want one, contact us and we'll send one to you. So I'm actually going to start reading in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12, but I just want to set the context of what's happening here a little bit. Okay, Jesus is in the process, like he's kind of traveling with his disciples, going from town to town, and they find themselves in this situation. You can see this in verse 1. 
where it says, meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands. So Jesus is teaching his disciples. And you can see that at the end of verse 1, chapter 12, where it says, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Jesus' heart is to speak to the people who are closest to him. To speak to the men, the women, the boys and girls who have given their lives to him, who have chosen to follow him. Jesus is speaking, first of all, to his followers. But there happens to be thousands of other people around. And the verse says, there are so many thousands gathered that many were trampling on one another. Like, just picture that for a moment. So you got Jesus and his closest circle, whether that's the 12, the 70, the 120, it doesn't say, his closest followers, thousands of people are gathered around this trying to hear what's going on, trying to get a glimpse of this miracle worker, trying to get a view, a picture. Maybe this guy will heal me. Maybe this guy will help me. Maybe this guy will solve my problems, whatever it is. And they're trampling on each other. I don't know about you, but the introvert in me goes, I won't, I, get me out of here. I wouldn't want to be a part of that. That's like when my daughter comes, she goes to these Christian concerts. It's like, how was the concert? Oh, it's awesome. We're up in front. We're body slamming and there's people climbing all over each other. I'm like, oh my God, that sounds like chaos to me. But that's exactly what's going on here. It's chaos. And in the midst of the chaos, look what happens. In verse 13. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, I love it. Jesus was a surfer, man, dude, you know, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, and the them is the disciples. Doesn't say it to the man, doesn't say it to the crowd. He's saying it to the followers of Jesus. Watch out! Exclamation point. And as we've been seeing in this series, the Greek for the exclamation point is important. This is important. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The parable is a story to just drive home a point. It says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus of grain. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. Exclamation point. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus concludes, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. You see, this man comes bursting out of this crowd of thousands. And he comes to Jesus with a problem. Now, the text doesn't specify any details apart from this man coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, tell my brother he's wrong. 
That's the Kevin paraphrase of this verse. Look what he's saying. It's tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So there's something going on. The brother isn't doing it. Now, again, in ancient Judaism, he may not have even been required to. This could have been the older brother. This could have been the younger brother. The younger brother may not have any say in the inheritance. It was very the system of order of who got the money when a family would die. And this brother says, so we don't know if he's older, younger, what. We don't know what's going on. But the sense of this is, Jesus, you need to correct my brother. He's not coming to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, here's the situation. Here's my brother's side of the story. Here's my side of the story. Could you please help us in figuring out what we should do with this money? We don't see that happening in the text. And then then Jesus replies, well, who made me judge over you? Who made me this arbiter among you? Well, God kind of did, and Jesus is kind of pointing this out to them, that the rabbis in Jesus' day did serve as kind of like these judges. They would help people in their disputes. You know, you would go to the rabbi, because again, traditionally, the rabbi would have been the most educated person in the town. The most educated, the most wisdom, seen in this position of authority and power. So they would come in, go to the rabbi, and say, here's the situation. Please judge it. It was interesting. About uh, eight years ago, I was taking a course at seminary on pastoral leadership. And the professor spent three whole lectures preparing everyone in this course on pastoral leadership on how to deal with people's problems. And he said, what's going to happen when you get a position, when you start serving in a church, is people are going to think you have all the answers. And those of you who have come to me looking for answers know how incredibly false that is. (laughs) That because you're the pastor, because you've got this degree, because you know the Bible, you're going to know all the answers. And so three full lectures to prepare us to deal with exactly this situation. And I'm in the class, and I'm like, okay, that's, okay, I get it. People will come with problems, and we'll do pastoral counseling, and, you know, and prayer, and discipleship. Okay, I get it. In the 12 years that I've been a pastor, I have had this conversation several times. Pastor Kevin, please tell my brother he's wrong. Please tell my sister she's wrong. Please tell my mother they're wrong. And it just happens all the time. People come and see me. It's like, Pastor Kevin, you know, our mother's getting older. I think our mother should be living with my sister, and my sister wants to send mom to a home. Tell my sister to let mom live with her. Okay? Why am I being brought into this? (laughs) I've never met your mom. I don't know anything about your mom. All I know is I don't want your mom to come live with me because I've already got a mother-in-law at my house. I got enough mothers in my home. Thanks, Mom, if you're watching. I love you. Um, You know, why am I in this? Or we got this money. You know, our uncle had died. We want, you know, I want to use the money for this, but my brother wants to use it for this. Tell my brother that he's wrong. And I can honestly say, in the eight years, 12 years I've been pastoring, every single one of those conversations has been about greed. Tell my sister that mom should live with her. I don't want her to live with me. The sister's response, tell my brother she should go into a home. 
because it's about me. <laughs> it's subtle. It's subtle. It's so subtle we don't think of it as greed. We probably honestly just think of it as self-protection. <laughs> if you met my mother, I'm not talking about my mother. I'm just using this as an you know, example. I know my mom watches sometimes. If you knew my mother, you wouldn't want her to live with you either. It's, it's, it's self-protection. We are wired in our sinful nature to self-preserve ourselves. We're greedy. We're selfish. We want what we want, when we want it, how we want it. That's our default. And I think that's what Jesus is pulling out of this story here. He's pulling out, because when you look at where the text continues, when you look at where the text continues, Jesus then goes into, again, telling the followers of Jesus, telling the disciples, guys, gals, you got to stop worrying about this stuff. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about possessions. Don't worry about where your next meal is going to come from. Don't worry about clothing. God's got this. You don't have to worry about your food. Look at the birds. God feeds them, and, you, and he loves you more than birds. God, look at the flowers. Look how beautiful they are. God will provide clothing for you. He loves you more than the flowers. Right? And then it continues, and Jesus ends this section where he says this, but seek first his kingdom and then these things will be given to you the inheritance the money the possessions all these things that we want and guard ourselves to ensure we get jesus says there's nothing wrong with those things there's nothing wrong with receiving an inheritance There's nothing wrong with our possessions. There's nothing wrong with the things that we've been blessed by God with. But seek first his kingdom. His kingdom comes first. And then everything else will be given to you. See, the big idea that I believe Jesus is teaching his followers is this. Is that the issue isn't wealth. The issue isn't money. The issue is priorities. The issue isn't wealth. The issue is our priorities, right? This type of greed that is at play here, like this story of this man that Jesus tells, when you look at what is happening in the story, let's just kind of go through it for a moment. So you got this rich man who's got a farm, and he has an abundant harvest. And the implication here is um, he worked hard. Is there any sin in working hard. No. In fact, the Bible teaches us that we shouldn't be lazy, that we should earn a day's wage, that we should do a good job. So he's following the commandments of God. And then it says, because of his hard work, he received an abundant harvest. An abundance means an overflow, more than he could ever use. Is there any sin in receiving an abundant harvest? No. In fact, the Bible teaches if you're not lazy, if you work hard, if you do an honest day's wage, if you seek God, he'll bless. So still, he hasn't done anything wrong. And then he says, well, what am I going to do with this harvest? Well, I'm going to store it up. I'm going to save it so it can be used over the longer haul. Is he sinning here? No. 
Because the Bible teaches us to be good stewards with our money. Handle it properly. Save money. You know, be wise with it. Don't be a fool and just keep spending it. Right? He appears to be doing everything right. And yet God's response to this man is, you fool. The only thing that we can see in this text that isn't right is at no point does he ask God, what should I do with the harvest? God, what is your will for the harvest? What do you want with my abundance? Never goes before God, never seeks God, never asks God. And the response of God is, you're going to die tonight. So where is all this harvest going to go? You see, you and I can't know the future. We don't know how many days on this earth we have. And again, nothing wrong with working hard. Nothing wrong with saving for retirement. I'm saving for retirement. I'm in ministry. I'm going to retire in 49 years. Okay, I'll be like 96 by the time I can finally hit that beach in Cuba. Okay, it's going to be awesome. I could be dead tomorrow. I don't know. I don't know. The issue isn't the wealth. The issue is our priorities. Do we seek first God's kingdom? Now, the question that people ask, and you might be thinking this right now, is, well, if it's about seeking first God's kingdom, you know, what is that? What are God's priorities? If you and I as followers of Jesus are supposed to be living out God's priorities, what are they? And the fear is that you have to get a master's degree in theological education to understand your Bible and figure out in this entire book, what is God's priority? (laughs) Because there's a lot of rules, there's a lot of commandments, there's a lot of teaching, there's a lot of stories in here. What is God's priority? And I firmly believe God's priority can be summed up in a couple of verses. And you can read those verses at the very end of the book of Matthew, where Jesus said to his followers, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, go. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. And be sure of this, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. That gives me goosebumps. That is God's priority in the world. The Great Commission is God's priority in the world. It is God's Number one plan and God's only plan for the church to live out. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is the Great Commission our priority? And if the answer is no, then there might be this little greed that has set in to our hearts. When it's me, think of me, protect me. Because right? this, this is how this sits in, and it's fascinating how it works. When you just think of your life for a moment, life is busy. How many of you are not busy? I got work for you. Okay, come see me. I want you to come see me tomorrow. I got a list. Okay? We're busy, and we actually live in a culture today that if we're not busy, we feel like we're failures. 
It's like we look down on people that are not busy. I love when I go have coffee or lunch with some of my atheist friends. They are convinced I work one day a week. And it's like, and you make up the sermon as you go. So, man, you got the best job in the world. I'm like, dude, you got to come hang out with me for a week and see what I do. Okay? And it's like, okay, I'll show up on Sunday. No, no, no. Sunday's the easy part of the job, okay? I have cookies and coffee and I preach. That's easy. The rest of the week is nuts. Okay? But if we're not busy, we, we, we devalue ourselves and we devalue other people. And so what happens is, like, look, just think of your life, right? We have responsibilities. We've got jobs. We've got school. We've got homework. We've got kids, kids' activities, sporting events, music events. We have bills to pay. We have appointments, doctor, dentist, chiropractor, all this stuff. We have exams to take. And that's when life is good. Throw in bad. Someone gets sick. You lose your job. You have a kid who's on drugs. You can't afford to pay your bills. Life is crazy. It's chaotic, just like the beginning of Luke 12. And in the chaos, we step out and we go to Jesus. Jesus, just give me stuff for me. And Jesus wants to set us free from that. Jesus doesn't want our heart to be focused on ourselves, even though there's nothing wrong with what we receive. Our priority has to be God's priority. God's priority is the Great Commission. The Great Commission must be the church's priority. And it's not just for missionaries and it's not just for pastors. It's for every follower of Jesus to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and make the Great Commission our priority. Seek first God's kingdom. So what I want to do now for the rest of our time together is um, I want to make this very applicable. And, and just see how this plays out in the world that we live in. Uh, one of the teachings in the Old Testament is that the elders of the people of Israel would sit on the watch gates and they would take notice of what's going on in the world. Right? The role of spiritual elders and spiritual leaders is to have a good idea of what's going on in the world in order to tell the people of God what's going on. Sometimes... We as Christians, we like to huddle. We like to kind of sit in our Christian bubbles and go to our our life group and go to our little services and go to our potlucks. I love Baptist potluck. It's awesome. It's the most biblical thing in the Bible, Baptist potlucks. Just kidding. It's not in there. And we huddle and we are blinded to the ways of the world. We don't know what's going on in the world. And when leaders show up and say, this is what's going on. You know what the response is? No, it's not. You're wrong. That's not accurate. You know why? Because it's not your world. Because you're in this. The role of elders is to open our eyes. And that's what I want to do for the remainder of our time together. I just want to open your eyes a little bit to the world that you and I are living in as followers of Christ. So I'm just pull up this graph here, Nick. So this comes from the United Nations And this is the human population of our planet from the year 1050 to 2050. So you can see for the first, you know, 900 years or so, like, you know, like you see this, this chart and human population for like 800, 900 years is pretty static. You know, there's a few plagues that came in there, a few wars that came in there, kind of kept the population nice and even. 
Then what started happening is something called increased birth rate. In other words, babies were surviving better. As we increase in medicine, as we create, you know, different things like that, medicine becomes more available. Um, Babies survive. Mothers survive giving birth. The birth rate increased. And as the birth rate increases around the world, the population of the world has spiked like crazy. And this is a fascinating thing to look at and to know. Currently right now on this planet are 7.6 billion souls. 7.6 billion souls. The United Nations reports that for many different reasons I won't go into, birth rate has already begun to decline. So this spike will start to decline, and they predict will return to the regular normal levels. In our lifetime, there are more human souls on the planet than have ever been here and will probably ever be here. In our lifetime, 7.6 billion souls, only 2.4 of them confess the name of Jesus. 5 billion souls who don't know God. And God's heart is that none of them would perish. That all would come to a saving faith in Jesus. That God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die for five billion people so that they would know him and have a meaningful relationship with their creator. This is the greatest harvest field in the history of humanity. And we are in it. Now watch what's happening. In the United States alone, 4,000 churches close a year. 4,000. Only 1,000 new churches are started in the United States a year. In the day where there is the greatest harvest field, we are seeing the rapid closure of local churches. You can't convince me that's not of the devil. You can't. I'm a numbers guy. I'm a data guy. My background is science. Numbers tell us a picture of what's going on. And this is where the numbers continue. The numbers continue that when it comes to our wealth, are we making the Great Commission the priority? The average Christian gives 2.4% of their income to the church. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. <laughs> During the time when people were throwing themselves out of windows because their stocks had crashed, was higher than today when we are overflowing in abundance. And again, and this isn't a money thing. This is a priority thing. This isn't a money thing. It's a priority thing. Is the Great Commission a priority? You know what the number one reason is for churches closing? People fighting. (laughs) Christians. You know what number two is? Money. 
can't keep it open. Can't pay the pastor, can't pay the lights, can't pay the bills, blah, blah, blah. It's not because God's not moving, God's not working. Maybe we're not making the Great Commission a priority. So what I want to do is just give just a few examples. Again, because this isn't about the money, it's about the priorities. We're all called to be a part of this. So what could this look like? Again, I just want to paint a picture of the world that we live in, right, with that graph that we looked at with 5 billion human souls on the planet. Here's a great example of one of God's priorities at work in the world. It's in the issue of Bible translation. So currently right now, there's about 6,500 human languages in the world. Right now, only uh, the New Testament is only available in 2,000 of those languages, And there are a group of organizations who, for the first time in human history, are actually working together, are putting aside their differences, and they are working on the mandate to have the New Testament available in every human language by the year 2033. In our lifetime, for the first time ever, everyone will be able to hear about Jesus in their heart language. Pastors and leaders will be able to tell people about Jesus and give them resources about Jesus in their heart language. This has never been done before. This is amazing stuff. It's not cheap. It takes people to get behind this work and to support this. And the beauty of this work now with technology, we have to think differently how we do these things. Now, a Bible translator can finish his translation submit it, it gets approved, and 30 seconds later, it is beamed to the other side of the planet and now available on a pastor's cell phone and can instantly start teaching it. Before, you had to go to the printing company, you had to make the books, you had to ship the books. It took years. Now it takes seconds. But it takes some money to make that happen be part of that work, to give in, to, 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 to feed that, to, to, to throw some resources into that. It's just one example on how God is doing this. Think, for example, you know, the Operation Christmas Child, the shoe boxes. It's such a phenomenal ministry. It's a box with stuff that we fill, with stuff that we bought at the dollar store. Stuff that our kids would never play with. Stuff that you and I wouldn't wear. Occasionally I eat the chocolate when I'm really desperate because it's cheap, but I do look at the date. Going, how, long, how old is this? Ah, it's fine. It'll be great. And I eat it anyways. Right, this shoebox. And when this kid gets it, they're invited to be brought into a process to learn more about Jesus, to be discipled, to be mentored and guided. And, and then they can bless their families and bless their communities from something that we don't even think about. I've done it before where... Oh, man, I forgot to make a shoebox this year. Because those five billion people weren't on my mind. I was busy. I didn't think of it. I had other stuff to do. I had too many meetings. I couldn't even find ten minutes to go to the dollar store. How's our priorities? Yeah, we kind of have this goal. We want to have 200 boxes. In a church our size, there's 480 people who attend this church. 200? That's peanuts. We can get that done in seven minutes. We can all just go to the dollar store right after the service, and we're done. Like, you can all be a part of it. It's not about the money. It's about the priority. (laughs) It's not about the money. It's 
about the priority. And then finally, I want to talk about church planting. If 4,000 churches are closing a year and only 1,000 are being planted, we actually are seeing our church plants are not making it past year five to year seven. They're part of those churches that are closing. Because the model of ministry that we've had for so many years is take a church planter or his wife, we send them out into a community, we have this small group of people who come alongside them, we say, you better put on a really good Sunday service, you better put on a really good kids program, you better kind of run a really good uh, youth program, you better have some really good Bible teaching, oh, and you've got to raise your own support. Who's good at all five of those things? Nobody. I have like people who call me all the time, Kev, you should be planting churches. We, we need you. Greenbelt's fine. Greenbelt's healthy. You come and plant churches. I go, there'll be snowflakes in a really hot place before I go church planting. Oh, God, I'm not putting you to the test or anything like that, okay? <laughs> it's hard work. And they shut down because people, we don't need more churches. Why do we need more churches in Ottawa? There's enough churches. Right now, our population's a million people. There are more Muslims than Christians right now in Ottawa. We need more churches. Vibrant, faith-filled, Bible-believing that look different. You can't do what the church down the road is doing because then you won't reach the people that they're not reaching. Need more churches, healthy churches. It takes some resources. It takes the priority. Relevant Magazine did an amazing study last year to help Christians realize, is the Great Commission our priority? Again, the numbers were Christians giving about 2.5%. And it goes, well, what if every single Christian in the United States tithed? And the tithe is first. Like we give first because the Great Commission is our first priority. That 10%. What if every Christian gave first 10%? If every Christian in the U.S. did that, the church would have an additional $165 billion dollars the work of God. And if you break that down, it would take about $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and death from preventable diseases. And that could be done in about five years. There are kids in the world that are dying from stuff that we've cured decades ago. In five years, that could be put to an end. $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation. I'm sorry, I did that one. Uh, $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, especially in places where a billion people live on only a dollar a day. And there'd still be $100 billion left over for church planting, raising up leaders, supporting missionaries. Five billion souls who need to know about Jesus. In a day and age when the church is still fighting about what we want and what we prefer and the style of music and how long the sermon was. Yeah, I see that number went red. I'm going over. That's okay. <laughs> you know, the Great Commission has got to be the priority. It's not about the money. It's not about the money. It's about our priorities. It doesn't have to be tons of money. For you, it could be a dollar. For you, it could be a nickel. I don't care what it is. But are you making your resources available for the work of the Great Commission? Jesus wants to undo greed. And there's all types of greed. We only talked about one today. The silent greed that puts us first over the Great Commission. Jesus wants to undo that. 
So the big idea isn't about the wealth. It's about our priorities. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, we praise you that we can come to this place and worship you. And we know we are so incredibly blessed living in this country. (laughs) We pray this morning for our uh, people who serve in government at every level, city, provincial, federal, uh, who oversee these systems that help us in times of struggle, in times of need, when we're sick, money comes in, when we're off work, money comes in. All these things we have, Father, to um, bless us. We are grateful for them. But God, guard our hearts that we don't um, become complacent because of these things. <laughs> that because we're so well taken care of, because we're so blessed, we forget that our priorities need to be your priorities. So thank you, Lord, that we could worship you here. Thank you that Jesus came to set us free. And he came to set us free from the grip of greed. Thank you, God, how you have worked in my life on this. If you're not familiar, my background was I was a materialist, like full-blown. If I had a bad day, I would buy something to cheer me up. If I had a good day, I bought something to reward myself. And God did a work in my heart and helped me to realize that I have so much. And he moved me into a place where I could just move into tithing. And I'm going to be honest, some days tithing sucks. There's some days I'd rather use that 10% to uh, go on a trip with my family. There are days I'd rather use that 10% to do some repairs on my house or buy myself a new TV. But the blessings of God and being obedient to God, of making him first, has changed my life. It's freed me from the power of possession, freed me from the power of want and greed. But it's not about the wealth, it's about our priorities. So God, I pray that all of us would seek you. Help us to make the Great Commission our priority. Help reveal to all of us the role that we play in that. We're going to collect our tithe and our offerings now. And to be honest, normally when I talk about money in church, I do the the collection first. So you don't think I was trying to manipulate you to give. If you are here today and you think I was trying to manipulate you, don't give. I would encourage you to take that money and use it somewhere else this week to be a blessing to someone. Give some money to a single mom. Take someone out for dinner who needs it. Pay for someone's oil change. Use that money somewhere else. But if you think I was trying to manipulate you, that's between you and God. I want to give you the freedom to put that money somewhere else this week. Because it's not about the wealth. It's about the priorities. So let's just pray for our offering. Lord, I praise you for the generosity of your children and how you are doing immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine through these gifts. I pray that you would multiply these gifts greatly so that more people out of these 5 billion human souls on the planet who don't know Jesus would know more about you, about how much, God, you love them. And that you want to use us. You want to use Greenbelt to reach these people around the world. What a privilege that is, God. So just bless this offering today. And Holy Spirit, as we continue to worship, I pray that you would free us from any guilt or shame that anyone might be feeling, because this isn't about guilt. This is about encouraging one another as followers of Jesus to truly be set free from the grips of the world. So Holy Spirit, speak to us as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.